tonight to 1st Timothy chapter 6 and if you need a Bible just lift up your hand the ushers will bring one to you so that you can follow along in our Bible study and we're picking up in verse 3 of chapter 6 the Apostle Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to set some things in order in the church there that were going awry. You get the sense when you read the 20th chapter of Acts that Paul could foresee that happening even before he left. And so he sends Timothy, his closest associate, to go to Ephesus to make some corrections and to bring the train back onto the track. And then he follows that you know, commission him sending Timothy with a letter, the letter that we're studying, this book of First Timothy. And his desire in writing this letter is to both instruct Timothy as to what he's to do, to remind him of the commission that he's been given, and then also to encourage him. And so as we come to chapter 6, Paul has said a lot of things about a lot of things so far in this letter. And as we kind of bring the plane in for a landing and and finish off our study of 2 Timothy, Paul closes this letter in very Paul-like fashion. He gives to Timothy a series of general exhortations, uh, kind of last final instructions before signing off, those things that are are floating around in his mind. Um, And and so he writes him these things here in chapter 6. And so there's basically five uh, things that Paul says to Timothy in in the remaining verses of chapter 6 here. The first segment is verses 3 through 5 where he talks to Timothy about how to deal with contentious Christians. And then in verses 6 through 10, he talks to him about the Christian's relationship with money and wealth and gain. And then in uh, verses 11 through uh, 16, he talks to him a little bit about eternal life. And then in verses 17 through 19, he gives to him a word for the wealthy. And then in the final two verses, uh, 21 or 20 and 21, he just gives him a last word uh, as he as he says goodbye to Timothy. And so uh, we pick up in verse three tonight. And he begins by saying here, "If any man teach otherwise." Now the common thread that has linked this epistle together more than anything else has been this concept of false teaching or bad doctrine in the church. You recall back in chapter 1, verse 3, the very first thing that Paul said to Timothy, he said, as you recall, that I sent you to Ephesus, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so he began the epistle by telling Timothy, I'm sending you there to correct the false teaching. There's bad doctrine going around the church in Ephesus. And then at the end of chapter 1, he says, This charge, Timothy, I give to you, and and that you remember the prophecies that went before on you, that by them you might war a good warfare, that you might correct these doctrines, and that you'd stand strong. And then he talked to Timothy in chapter 3 about the very purpose of the church, that the church exists as the pillar and the ground of the truth. That our very, the, the very epicenter of our mission is to bring forth and uphold the truth of God's word in its purest form. And then in chapter 4, he talked to him about false teachers and gave examples of some of the false doctrines and how they corrupt the church. And then in chapter 5, he gave examples of good teaching, solid teaching. And now as he concludes here, he says, if any man teach otherwise. Teach other than what? Teach otherwise, and then he tells us. He says, and consent not to wholesome words. That means to come alongside of healthy words. And then he tells us, he says, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. What words 
What teaching, what doctrine is Timothy to instill and uphold within the church there in Ephesus? It's the teaching of the word of God. The truth of the word of God. That is the teaching that Timothy is to uphold. Those are the wholesome words that, 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 that people are to consent to. The word of God, the Bible, and the things that the Bible gives to us, it is the anchor and the foundation of both how we live and what we believe. And the end of all argument and all debate is it must be upon the Bible if we're to call ourselves Christian because that's what the wholesome words are. Good doctrine, the words of Jesus Christ. It's so awesome when you get into a discussion with someone about a biblical topic or a a theological issue and and to be able to hear what they have to say and, and then to just be able to say to that person well the bible says and then tell someone what the Bible says about something or show them what it says about something and then to just have that be the end of the argument. And many times it is when you can just say, well, the Bible says and you can answer the debate or the question or the controversy and and you can't talk back to it. It's just, it's the Bible, you know. How do you argue with the Bible? Or when it comes to an issue of the way that someone is living their life, the choices that they're making, the behavior that they're demonstrating, the example that they're giving as they profess Jesus Christ and yet maybe live contrary to what the Bible teaches. And then to bring them to the Bible and say, well, listen, the Bible says that the way you're living isn't right. The Bible says that, you know, you get married first. Or the Bible says that you're not to be drunk that that's not godly behavior. It's not according to godliness. It's not the words of Jesus Christ. It's contrary to that. And Paul says, if anyone teach otherwise, and they consent not to the Bible, whether it be in the things that they're saying, or whether it be in the things that they're doing, he tells us in verse 4 the kind of person that you're dealing with. He says that he is proud. He is proud. The word pride or proud, it means to set oneself above. To put self first in all things. That's what pride is. It's to have an egocentric universe. That me is the core of what everything is. Of what I believe and what I do. It revolves around, it centers around me and what I want and what I think. And pride is always an ugly thing, isn't it? I mean, when pride, when self is the center of anything, when pride shows itself in a family, it destroys a family, it it robs peace from a family. When one person in a family sets themselves above everyone else, pride destroys a family. Pride is terrible in a workplace. When you go into a place of employment, and, and oftentimes there, pride is in everyone. And everyone is above everyone else. Everyone is first. And it makes for a very contentious, very, uh, you know, disturbed atmosphere. In a church, when there's pride, when someone elevates themselves and it becomes about themselves and the whole church revolves around them and what they want and what they do, pride is ugly in a church. It grieves the Holy Spirit and it tears churches apart. But the place that pride rears its ugly head in the worst way, the place that pride is the most damaging and does the most harm in the Christian life and in the world is when a person sets themselves above the word of God. When a person is proud concerning the word, in other words, they set themselves above what God says in his word. Whether it be what they believe or the way that they behave, what I think, or the way I feel, trumps what God says in his word. And when a person lives that kind of a life, they're they're consenting not to wholesome words, the words of godliness, the words of Christ, and, and it says that he is proud. And then it tells us beyond that, it says he is proud, and it says that he knoweth nothing. It means that he's empty headed. That a person who says that I know more than God or what I think trumps what God says, that person, you can just brand them, you could label them in your mind, that that person is a know-nothing. They're empty-headed. The problem, though, with empty-headed people is that usually the emptier the head, the bigger the mouth. (laughs) 
because you've got to hide that. You know, you can't let anybody know that there's nothing going on in there. So, so, so they hide it by talking much. He says, but they know nothing. And then he says, what? Well, this is what they say. He says, but doting about questions and strifes of words. Now, I, I know that's kind of a tricky King's English sentence there, but here's what it means: that word doting. It means to have a diseased appetite. And the word questions and strifes of words means disputed issues. And so literally what that means is that they have a diseased appetite for disputed issues. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of being around someone like that. But they have a diseased appetite to feed upon the debate that surrounds useless things. They thrive on it. They, they, they're, they're predators for an argument. And, and for them, that if they got into a good argument today and they got to make their point to someone, that's a good day. They, they did something. They feel like they're productive in the kingdom of God because they fought about something. And so these people will fight with you about words, he says, doting about words. They'll, they'll talk to you about translations of the Bible. Well, you, you use the NIV or you use the King James Version? Or you use the ESV? Don't you know the source of that? Or how many omissions there are? And, and, and that becomes the issue. That if you don't use their translation of the Bible, you're not even saved, you know. So someone nodded, you know, like, yeah. You know, like, yeah, that's right, you know. Because you could feel that way sometimes, you know. Or about the issues of peripheral matters, you know, where people stand on reformed doctrines and theologies, where people stand in their belief about end-time events, the way people feel about the role and work of the Holy Spirit in the world in these days, you know. And and there's some people that they find those things and they just can't wait to to use it, to get in and, and to fight about it. And it's damaging. There was a season of my Christian life where I I was in fellowship with a bunch of people that had this flavor. I don't want to say that they were the the, the fullness of what Paul is describing, but it had an effect on me. And I remember as an early Christian, I could listen to just about any any Christian person uh, on the Christian radio station or on TV, and I could get something from it. Not everything, but there was something in it. But, But then after a while, I started listening to people that had this doting, problem and they would begin when i would say hey have you ever heard this person oh that person <laughs> that person doesn't believe and they and then they would start and, and and you know what it did to me is that one by one all of these people whom i was learning from i could no longer learn from i would i would hear them but i would say that person doesn't believe that the holy spirit works on the earth today i can't listen to them And before I could receive from anyone, I had to know in my mind, where do they stand on eschatology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, Christology? Where do they stand in in all of these things? Biology, psychology, doxology. I I want to know where you stand in everything. And if you line up perfectly with what I've been taught and what I've received, then I can listen to you. And you know what happened? I couldn't listen to anybody. But there's people that, 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 that get stuck in that rut, and the rest of their Christianity, they just become bitter fighters, doting about questions and strifes of words, he says. And then he says, this is the outcome of that, that type of a person. He says, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, which is villainizing, and evil surmisings, or wicked suspicions is that it causes division in a church because now there's envy over who's doing what and strife and arguing and now villainizing and everybody's suspicious of everyone else. He says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. And then he tells us what the root of it is. Here's the root of what causes a person to become that way and to become proud and egocentric in their relationship with God, it says this. It says, supposing that gain is godliness. Paul says that way underneath all of that, the thing that starts off that pride that sets themselves above God is that somewhere deep inside of them, they hold the conviction that the reason why a person should follow Christ, 
or profess Christianity or attend church is because of what God is going to give me or do for me in my life. I'm a Christian because of what God is giving to me, what he's going to do for me. Supposing that gain is godliness. What's in it for me? It's all about me. And this is what Paul says that we're to do with these types of people. He says, avoid them. He says, from such, withdraw yourself. Avoid them. Well, you say, okay, uh, if, if godliness is not a means of gain, of getting gain, of acquiring wealth, or of having things happen, good things happen in my life, if that's not the proper motive for a person to follow God, then what is the proper relationship that a Christian person has to wealth and gain and riches? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Because that's what Paul addresses now as we come into verse 6. And he begins by, by telling us the secret of the world's richest man. Here it is. And if you've never seen this verse or if it's not underlined and highlighted and starred in your Bible a thousand times, I hope it will be after tonight. Because this is the secret to, to, to being rich. Here it is. He says this, verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That if you want to know how to be a truly rich person, it's very simple. You don't have to go buy anybody's uh, get wealthy tapes or start a business or make a certain investment. It's two very simple steps. Number one, he tells us that godliness. It means God-likeness. That to be godly, it means first of all that my account is settled with God. My sins have been forgiven. I know that I'm saved, that, that all of my past has been washed away, that it's covered in the blood, and I now have peace with God. That's the beginning of godliness. But then after that, it's a pursuit to live my life as unto the Lord. I'm growing more and more into the image of Christ, being conformed into it. And so I, I live honestly. I, I'm not a liar. I, I don't have to remember who I told what story and then keep it all in line so that I don't get found out. I'm just an honest person and I I don't have to worry about that. I'm faithful in in my relationships, whether it be in my marriage or in my business. I, I do what I'm supposed to do and I do it as unto the Lord so that I don't have to worry about what the fallout of that's gonna be. I'm a faithful person. It means that I'm not doing things that if I get caught... I'm going to be ashamed of it. And I'm going to you know, have reproach and bring reproach upon the name of Christ. It's, it's godliness. It means I'm living an unaddicted life. That I'm not worried constantly about how I'm going to break free from these things that I'm tangled up in. You know, because I'm, I'm got, I've got the Spirit of God living inside of me. Setting me free from these things. And, and when a person lives a godly life, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. But it means that your heart is surrendered and submitted to God and that he is actively working in your life, actively conforming you into the image of Christ. It's godliness. I'm living a godly life. That that brings a peace, a serenity that money can never buy. To be able to sit with the Lord and to know that your sins are forgiven and that he's at work in your life and that you're at ease with that, that's a peace that you can't buy. And then he says on top of that, number two, is then to be content. To be content means to be satisfied with the things that you have. Somebody said one time that the happy man is not the man who has the most, but it's the man who needs the least. And so for a person to be living a godly life and then to just be content with what they have that person, the Bible calls, you are a rich man. You are wealthy. Because you have what money could never buy. And and then he goes on, and he says in verse 7, he says, why? Why is this uh, the true mark of wealth? Because he says this, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. I've had four kids, and I have one on the way, so that'll be five. I've and I, and I don't say that, you know, so that you'll know that, but, but here's, here's what I do know. I know that every one of my kids, and I expect to see it again, all of them came into this world with nothing. They were all naked. 
Not one of them had a diamond earring, you know. <laughs> I, w- I was hoping, kind of, but, you know, like the fish that Peter caught that had the gold coin in the mouth, you know. I, I was ho- it didn't happen. They all came into this world naked. And, and the funny thing is that they're going to leave this world with even less than what they came with. Because at least when they came, they had a body. When they leave, they don't even keep that. They, they leave that behind. And they, they leave even emptier than when they came in. It's like that uh, rich man who, you know, was just so loaded. He was so wealthy. And at his funeral, all of his kids were, were there. And, uh, you know, they were carrying out the coffin. And there was four of them, one on each corner. And, and, and you know, the youngest one looked at the oldest one who was settling the estate. And, and he looked over at him as they were carrying him. And he said, hey, he said, how much did he leave behind? And the older son looked over and he said, all of it. <laughs> because you can't, you can't take it with you. See, you can gain all kinds of material wealth. You can build a name for yourself and a reputation or a legacy that that was a moneymaker, that was a wealthy man. But when you leave on the day after you left this world, what you had while you were here is completely irrelevant. And the only thing that will matter is what you did. And for that reason, true richness is not in the things that you have or the size of your account or of your portfolio. But true riches lies in what's going on inside your heart. Godliness with contentment is great gain. All of it. Job chapter 1, verse 21. Job, who was a wealthy man and was stripped of his wealth, said these words. He said, Naked came I into this world, and naked shall I return. And that's the truth. You can't take anything with you. And so to spend your life amassing wealth and to living, live for the pursuit of it is a wasted life because it does you nothing in the end. It will serve you for a short time here. It comes with all kinds of problems. And then you die and you leave it all behind and you could take nothing with you at all. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. You know how I know that? Because there was an article that I read this week that just in the past couple of months, there has been a spike in grave robbering, tomb raiding. People digging up caskets to, you know, go through and find rings and necklaces and, you know, things. Of, why? Why would they do that? Because they know that even though these people were buried with all of this stuff, they didn't take it with them. It's still there in the tomb. The pharaohs that were buried with their gold and their treasures, all of that is still there. It didn't, they didn't take it with them because you can't. You came in with nothing, you leave with nothing, and so therefore, he says in verse 8, therefore, having food and raiment. They're both in the plurals, foods and coverings. So it does include shelter, you know, okay, God, please don't take my roof, you know. No, it, it includes that. It's foods and coverings. He says, if you have those things, he says, let us therewith be content. And if a person is pursuing godliness and they are content, And the Bible says that you are rich. Well, does the Bible condemn physical or intrinsic wealth? Is that ungodly to be a person of wealth or to be a person that has... No, no, no. God does prosper some people. The Bible says in Deuteronomy that God gives you the ability to gain wealth. And so there are some times that God will prosper a person. And it's not wrong to be prospered. It's, it's, money can be a, a great tool that can be used in the kingdom of God. And so it doesn't condemn being rich. There's nothing wrong with that. If God's given you that opportunity or that kind of mind or that kind of grace, then you're not in the wrong. But here's what the Bible does warn, if you'd look with me at verse 9. Notice what he says. He says, but they that will be rich, that is, they that want to be rich, they that have it actively in the forefront of their mind that the goal for their life is that they're going to get rich. That they are constantly thinking about, scheming ways that they can figure out that they can build it up. That they don't have to work anymore. Or that they could build a bigger house or live in a better place or have a better car. They're, they're constantly driven by this desire to earn wealth. That's who he's talking to here. He says, they that want to be rich. And then he says this about that person. He says, they first of all fall into temptation. There is a whole world of temptations that come upon a person that has wealth. 
that you and I know nothing about. You know, we have our struggles and the things that we, we, we fight against. Every one of us has those things, our weaknesses, you know, uh, the, the, the sins of the flesh that we battle with constantly. But once you add to just that nominal amount of sin that all of us have, now you add to it an unlimited amount of money. And what you've just done is that you have given a whole lot more time and a whole lot more accessibility to the sinful nature to indulge upon sinful things. And so there are temptations that come upon someone that has money that that none of us know anything about. I remember when I was, I think I was five years old, I remember being in kindergarten. And my parents took us to the Lowe's movie theater in uh, Rochester, New York, and we saw E.T. Remember E.T.? You know, with the the glowing finger and everything. And it it, it was a famous movie in that day. And being five years old, now I don't know why my parents brought me to that movie because I I wouldn't show it to my five-year-old or even my ten-year-old, you know. But I remember after seeing that movie, you know, I walked around the house for days. You know, E.T. phone home, E.T. phone home, E.T. phone home, you know, and this whole thing. And I remember my father one night, he, he sat me down, you know, and he did, and I'm so thankful that he did this. He sat me down. And he talked to me, uh, uh, you know, maybe we were watching it again on TV or something, and he pointed to the screen at Drew Barrymore, who at that time was, you know, she was Gertie, the little girl in the movie. And my father said to me, and I remember, he said, I want you to remember that little girl. And, And with almost prophetic knowledge, he said, I want you to watch what happens to her life and just remember it. And now, looking back these many years later, and you look at what happened in Drew Barrymore's life, Someone who has prospered monetarily, that had free time, was exposed to temptations that were too great, too powerful for any human being to handle. I mean, look at what we're watching happen right now. I mean, we're losing one NFL football player a week right now. That's the rate. They're just dying. And it's all because of this very thing that we're talking about. Because they that will be rich fall into temptation. Time unlimited plus money unlimited equals bad news. They fall into temptation. And you should thank God if you're not a rich person. Because if you're not a rich person, it's because God knows what would happen to you if you were. Infamy is love. They fall into temptation. He also says they fall into a snare. A person sets forth in their life, in their, their young life, and, and they want to be rich. And so they choose a career, a path to go on in their life that's going to provide for that to happen. And so they look at the things that are paying the most money and then they give themselves to go that direction because that's their drive. I want to make a lot of money. I want to drive a BMW. I want to live on the Upper West Side in a flat overlooking Central Park. That's what I want. I want to golf on weekday mornings. That's, that's what I want. And so they go out in that direction. And so here they, they, they go into a career path that, that they don't know anything about, that they don't like, but they're doing it because they want the money. And very early on, they learn, okay, if I'm going to get ahead in this business, this is the way I have to talk. And these are the things that I have to do. And these are the people that I have to squash And these are the rules of the game. And these are the kind of deals that I have to make. And these are the types of compromises that I have to compromise. And the the under-the-table, back-room, black-room deals that I have to be involved in if I want to get where I'm going. And so pretty soon they find themselves in this vortex going down this road. And one day they come to a place where they're working 60 to 80 hours a week. They're steeped in compromise and in corruption. They're miserable, not in a field that they like or enjoy or find any pleasure in at all, and they're stuck now. They're, they're in a snare. That's what he says here, that you're, now you're caught. What do you, now what do you do? You're stuck in this place. Because why? Because you wanted to get rich, and you didn't seek the Lord, and you weren't content in the thing that he gave you, the gifting that he put upon you, but your motive was just to be wealthy. Not to find God's purpose for your life, but to find the world's purpose. You fall into a snare. And then he says, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, you don't have to be rich to have experienced this. 
How many of us, and I, and I include myself, and I'm, you see the smile because I've been down this road, is that I think, oh, you know, I would so love to have one of those. I remember, you know, I was working down in the city and I was making good money, not, you know, stupid money, but I was doing a little bit better than what we needed to be doing and we had a little bit of a cushion. And, and I thought, you know, I've always wanted a Jeep. It's, I thought, so cool to have a Jeep, you know, drive down the road with the doors off and, you know, the big tires and you take off the top and you let your foot hang out the door while you're driving. And, and, and you know, the, the warm summer air, you know, and the whole thing. And, and so I did it. I, I said, you know, George, I, and I prayed about it. I really, I really honestly sought the Lord. And I said, Lord, can I do this? And the Lord said, yes. He, he did. He gave me full permission and, 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 and all of the things in my mind to justify it. You know, they're, they keep their value. They, they're reliable, you know, all, and those things all held true. None of those things backfired in my face. And I even sold it at the right time and didn't really lose money other than just regular uh, common depreciation. It was not like a, a train wreck. But here's what I did learn from that experience is that the second you get something like that, you think, oh, I've always wanted to have one of these. The moment you sign on the dotted line, while you're even driving home, you realize, wow, this thing has me. And that's what happens. And all of a sudden, what was supposed to be in my mind to be a blessing has become a burden. And though it was okay, it was a burden. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? We wanted something, and so we went and got it, and no sooner did we have it that we realized it has us. They fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men. You know that feeling, don't you? I'm drowning in debt. I'm drowning in things that I can't take care of. I planned for acquisition, but I didn't account for maintenance, and I don't know how to keep all of this up and still pursue a life of godliness. And so it drowns men in destruction and some even in perdition, which speaks of hell. How many people miss out on the kingdom of God and never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because they've given their life to a pursuit of wealth and riches? They're drowned in destruction and perdition. And then he takes it even deeper in verse 10. He tells us this. He says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, that is the most misquoted verse in the whole Bible. Because, you know, most people say that money is the root. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money, in and of itself, is dead. It is, it is neither good nor bad. It is innate. It doesn't, it doesn't have life. It cannot be evil or good. It is when you attach sinful man... And his affection for it and his lust for it, that is what makes it evil. So it is the love of money. It isn't the money, it's the man. And when you look around the world and you see what's going on today, all of it is somehow traced back to the love of money. Someone gets involved in prostitution and overcoming it, it's because someone had a love of money. If someone's involved or caught up in human trafficking, it's the love of money. If someone is addicted to drugs and their life becomes destroyed because of that, it's because of the love of money. The problems that we're facing as a nation today in the United States of America are the direct result of the love of money. People that are losing their homes and destitute of the things that they have, it's because someone had an ungodly love and lust for money. Lord willing, we're going to delve into this verse and how it relates to our country Next week, in, it, in, in our whole study, as we talk about the condition of our nation. But the love of money is the root of all evil, he says. And he says, which while some coveted after, that is, that they wanted more of it, they have erred from the faith. And how many people that when you read the pages of Scripture, you see because of a love or a desire for riches and wealth, they erred from the true riches of a relationship with God. I think of the men of Shechem who entered into a covenant with Jacob. They had the privilege of sharing the land, of entering into the covenant of God's circumcision. And the king of Shechem, the man Shechem himself, came to his men and he said, Hey, if we circumcise our men, will we not have all of their cattle and all of their goods and all of their gold? And so he 
entered into that thing because of a love of money and it cost him the destruction of your nation. I think of Achan, the young Israelite who was living in the most promising time of his nation's history. They were coming into the promised land. And the command came forth in their first battle at Jericho. Don't touch the spoils. Everything that we take in Jericho belongs to the Lord. But it says that Achan coveted after a bar of gold and a Babylonian garment. And it turned to the destruction of himself and of his family and of some of the chief men of Israel. And it cost a great defeat. He erred from the faith. I think of Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. The next in line to occupy the privilege of being a prophet of God to the nation. And because of a covetous heart, he went after Naaman and he said, Hey, hey, my master has changed his mind. And he actually wants some silver and a few changes of clothes for some of the men. A covetous heart. And Elisha came and said, Did not my heart go with you? The leprosy that came off Naaman clinged to you. And Gehazi's life went down in obscurity and destruction because of a love for money. Think of Simon, the sorcerer, who experienced one of the greatest revivals when Peter and John came to Samaria. And yet because of a love for money, he came to Peter and he said, Hey, I'll give you money. Sell me this power so that whosoever I lay my hands on, they might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, Thy money perish with thee because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon went away into peril and into destruction. And I think of Judas, perhaps one of the most privileged people to ever walk the planet. Three and a half years with the Lord himself. And because of a covetous heart, a desire for money, he betrayed the Lord Jesus himself. And he became the model of perdition. Jesus calling him the son of perdition. Paul says, which some, having coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Some people are happy when they get what they want. Other people are happy when they want what they get. And that is the exhortation that Paul is giving to us in this scripture. If you are living a godly life, if you're saved and you know that you're going to heaven, and you have food and you have clothes, be content with what things that you have and don't give yourself to a pursuit of riches. And so he says in verse 11, he says, but thou, but you, Timothy, you, O man of God, you here at Calvary Chapel tonight that pursue the things of God, flee these things. It's a definite article. It means get away, turn away, don't Don't be drifting down the path. Don't keep it as a peripheral goal or ambition. Oh, I hope it happens. I'll kind of make it happen. No, no, flee from it. Put it out of your mind that that's what the pursuit of your life is going to be about. And then contrast, he says, and instead, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. And here's the idea. The idea is this. Is that with the same amount of drive and ambition and pursuit that someone goes after wealth, the godly person goes after righteousness, a right relationship with God. Godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. But that's to be our pursuit. And then he tells him, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. The, The word means to apprehend it, understand it as much as you can. That there's a war that's going on in this world and the war is for souls. And that as much as within you, lay hold or apprehend, understand what that war is about and then what's at stake, the soul, and what it is, eternal life. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou also art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I don't think that any one of us truly understands either the war that we're in as believers in Jesus Christ or what's at stake, which is the soul and the eternal life that the soul will experience. Someone sent me a a video this past week. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the TED conference. 
Every year, somewhere in the world, they hold this conference. It's technology, entertainment, and design. And, and basically, entrepreneurs and uh, inventors come from all around the country, and they, they kind of present what's on the cutting edge of technology, the latest and the greatest, the things that are coming down the pike. And they sent me a video of a man out of MIT who developed a femto camera. Femto camera means that it's a, it's a high-speed camera that literally captures video at a, a rate of one trillion frames per second. That means that it can capture images or video at one million times the speed of light. And, and just to put that in perspective, if you were to watch a bullet fired out of a gun travel five feet you know, on a femto camera, it would take over a year to watch the bullet go five feet. That's how slow they can, they can have this imagery. And here's what they've been able to do with this, is that they've been able to watch and observe light as it travels through space. To actually observe light waves while they're traveling at a very slow speed and see the effect that light has on objects and things while it moves. And from this research, here's what they've been able to do. They've been able to effectively see behind corners, just with light. No x-ray, no, no mirrors, nothing, but just shining light at, at this kind of speeds. They can read the reflection, and they can display an image of what's going on behind that corner. They can see into a body and see what's going on inside someone's body without the use of x-ray, just using light and nothing else and see what's going on. They can do endoscopes and this kind of internal imagery and see around impossible corners and just with light. And, and the possibilities of what this, this does, it just goes beyond. And there's a whole list of other things, you know, that, that, it, that, it, that it does. And, and then there were some other things that are in the pike. I wish I could tell you because they're super interesting, but they're not in the Bible. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they're not part of our study, so I, I, you know, I can't. But I could, but it'd be a waste of your time. But here's my point. Here's why I bring this up. is because there, there's nothing new about light. I mean, light's been here for 6,000 years. As, as long as man has been on the earth, the sun has come up and the sun has gone down. We use light every day. We interface with light. We're using light right now, and it's just light. It, it's just common. It's, it's whatever. But, but now, all of a sudden, technology and the advancement of it is allowing us to understand value in light that we have never known existed. And in just one simple discovery and one simple observation, the value of light has exponentially increased. What used to just be common, everyday, ordinary stuff is now valuable because we understand the potential of what it is. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says this. The Bible says that the value of one human soul is greater than the value of every material object in the entire universe. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Now, the world, the universe, the cosmos, the created matter of what we interface with doesn't just possess light, but also sound, nature, you know, Billions of things, resources that we don't even begin to understand the value of. And yet Jesus said that one soul trumps all of that in value. And that there's a war for souls. That that's what's at stake. And here's the point. The point is this. Is that you and I, we have no idea the value of what we have in our soul. We have no idea the potential of what we can experience because we are soulic, because of our soul. We don't know the first thing about the soul, but God does. And he says, if you have that, you're rich. Because what you have in that is more than all of the combined wealth, resources, potential of everything that's in the universe. It's all tucked in to a soul. Amazing. Satan understands it somewhat. It's why he wants to drag as many down as he can. Jesus understands it to the point where he was willing to give up everything. That he was willing to bleed out and die upon a cross and be stripped of his glory and humbled before all of humankind so that we might have the opportunity of our souls being saved, of being redeemed. 
And here's what Paul's trying to say to Timothy is, listen, for you, young man, for you, man of God, for you, Christian, that's hearing my voice tonight, for you to trade your soul for some stake in a fiat currency or in some treasure that this world promises but that can never produce and that you can't take it with you is foolish because you're trading something of value that you don't understand for something of value that doesn't exist. So lay hold on eternal life. Understand what it is that's been purchased for you and then fight the good fight of faith and live for it. Give yourself to it, Timothy. This charge in verse 13, he says, I I charge thee in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good witness, a good confession, that you keep this commandment without spot. That is the commandment to flee these things and to lay hold on life, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells us the second thing, not just the value that we obtain in our soul, but now also the value that's in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 15. He says, which in his times, that is when he returns, he shall show who is the blessed. And amazing, that word blessed means the well-off one. It's a play on words. You know, as he's talking to people who desire to be rich, he he calls Jesus the the true well-off one, the only blessed and only potentate, that is the true authority, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, that is deathlessness. He's the only one that can bring a soul to life, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Here's the point, what Paul's getting at, why he breaks into this doxology here in this portion. Here's why. is because here's the true treasure for the Christian. Here is the value of what you and I possess. Number one, it's you have your soul. You've been saved. Number two, it's Jesus Christ. See, do you remember what he said back in the opening verses of this chapter? He said that there are some people who follow God because of what God is going to do for them or give to them. Gain his godliness. I'm following him because of what he will do for me. Paul says, I follow him because of who he is and what he did for me. You see the difference? See, in one scenario, I'm using God. I'm following him because of what he's going to do. Because he's going to give me a better life. Because he's going to give me a spouse or a better spouse or a house or a better house. He's going to give me, and, he's, and that's why I'm following. Gain is God. The other one, it's him. For Paul, it was him. It's him. He's the reason why we follow. He's the reason why we're here tonight. He's the reason why we study the Bible. He's the object of affection in eternity. It's Jesus. It's not what he's going to do. Hey, this all passes away but it's what he's done and who he is and he's given himself to us and we get to spend eternity with him. That's glory. He will show who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who dwells in light that no man can approach unto. That's the glory that awaits us. It's Jesus. Let me ask you tonight, why are you sitting here And why are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? Ask yourself. Is it because of what he'll do for you? What you hope he'll do for you? Or is it because of who he is and what he's done for you? On Calvary's cross, redeeming your soul and giving it to you. Well, a word to the wealthy, and we have to close. Verse 17, he says, charge them. That means warn them that are rich in this world. Who are the rich in this world? I'll tell you who it is. It's those that have food and raiment, coverings, a roof over their head, and then a little bit more than that. If you have food and coverings and a little bit more than that, then that's who Paul is talking about here. Did you know that the average income of an adult in the world, this is not United States, this is global, that the average income 
globally is $17,700 a year. That is the average median income of the globe of an adult, $17,700 a year. Do you know what the average income is in the United States of America? $39,100 a year. That's the average, the median of everyone in the country. That means that as a general rule, if you live in the United States of America, you are 220% more wealthy than the world. You understand? If you make more than $39,100, then you're rich. You're very rich. Because that's what Paul's talking about here. Notice what he says. He says, charge them that are rich in this world. Not according to their own economy or in their neighborhood or if they're keeping up with the Joneses, but those that are rich in this world. And I would say that this includes most of us, wouldn't you? And so this warning is very personal, very true to you and I. And what does he say? He says, first of all, that they be not high-minded. And that's a great word there. Usually in the Bible, when you see that word, it, it, it means arrogant. And it certainly does mean that. If, if you're a wealthy person, if you're an American, you, you shouldn't be arrogant. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. The word literally means this. It means up-minded. To be high-minded means to be up-minded. And, and what that means is that you're always looking up. Your, your eyes are always looking upward. See, no one ever thinks they're rich. When, when you make 20,000, you're always looking at the person who makes 40. Wow, if I make 40. When you make 40, you're always looking at the person that makes 80. Oh, man, if I made 80. If you make 80, you're always looking at the person that makes six figures. That's attainable. If you make six figures, you think, man, I want to be a millionaire. I got to be in the millionaire club. And then you make a million and you say, man, a million's nothing these days. You got to have at least a hundred million, and, and and you see, it's up-minded. You're always looking up, and he's saying, warn them that they be not up-minded. Don't be looking at what you don't have. Take a minute to consider what you do. Warn them that they be not high-minded. But then he says, nor trust in uncertain riches. What does it mean to trust in uncertain riches? Here's what it means. It means that if, when you do your bills and you pay, look at the books and you, 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 know, you go through and you settle things up, if the money is there to pay all the bills, then inside you feel peace. And if the money maybe isn't there, then you feel anxious. That could be a sign that you're trusting in uncertain riches, that that's where your trust lies. If you get anxious. Now, before you say, that sounds really nice, man, up there on the stool. I'm guilty. <laughs> Because when tab A and tab B don't equal zero or whatever, guess who gets anxious, you know? It's a very common thing for us. But that's what he's saying, isn't it? He's saying don't trust. And then he calls them what they are. He says uncertain riches. Every single one of us right now, if you use money to pay bills, every single one of us is in this great game of musical chairs. And one of these days, the music's going to stop. And guess what? There ain't enough chairs to cover all of what is out there in music, in air, you know. That's what we're going to talk about next week. It's uncertain. We're going to see some of that happen in our lifetime. It's going to be ugly. And if your trust is in uncertain riches, then you're going to be one of the ones that loses heart. Don't trust in uncertain riches, but rather in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. If you have things, it's a gift from God. Psalm, I think it's Psalm chapter 84, verse 11, says that, you know, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. It says that he withholds no good thing from those that love him. He doesn't withhold good things from him. And here's what that tells me. It tells me that he's not going to give me one dollar more than what's good for me to have. And if he did, I know me, if he gave me one dollar more than what I should have, then I'm going to get in trouble with that dollar. And I'm going to get in a full dollar's worth of trouble with it. It means for you and for me that he's not going to make us one shred more attractive than what we can handle. If it was good for us, he would give it to us. But he knows what would happen if we were perhaps more attractive than we are or as attractive as we want. 
It means that he's not going to give us one day more than what's good for us. He gives us what's good. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. He loves us, but he knows us. He's working on us. He says that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. And here's what he's saying, is that if you are a person who has prospered monetarily, if you are one who is considered rich by the standards of this world, then you have a stewardship. That you have been entrusted by God with those resources to be used for his glory and for his kingdom. And it's the same type of stewardship that he'll require of a pastor or a Bible teacher or someone who has a gift of administrations or anything else in the body of Christ that will give an account. Is that those that are rich, and that includes you and I, that we will give an account for what we did with what we were given. And here's the beautiful secret that's given to us in verse 19. Here it is. You want to know what it is? Here it is. You cannot take your wealth with you to heaven but you can send it ahead. Look in verse 19. He says, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. When you use your money, your resources, your wealth, your riches for the kingdom's sake, you are translating your wealth from the currency of earth to the currency of heaven. I went to England a few years ago, and they operate on the pound over there. When I went, the pound was worth two times the dollar. So, you know, in other words, you needed two dollars to get one pound. And boy, that hurt, you know, because you, you spend a lot of dollars over there. So, so I went over there with a bunch of dollars, and when I tried to buy things, no one was interested in my currency. We don't want that. It's garbage. We, we put that in our wood stoves, you know, bring us some pounds. You know, we, that's what we operate on. That's what we want. And so what I had to do is I had to go to the exchangers and I had to get the currency that was current in England. I had to trade it in for pounds. They didn't want, it was no good there, my money. And the same thing is true. Your, your money here on earth, e- even if you could bring it with you to heaven, it's worthless there. What's a dollar in heaven? What is, a, what is gold in heaven? What does it do? It, it paves streets. It's asphalt. That's it. So how do I send it ahead as you make it current with heaven's currency? And how do you do that? You give it away. You invest it in the kingdom of God. You use it to do good works. You're ready to distribute, willing to communicate. I was thinking about this while I was preparing. If someone who was really wealthy, I mean, I'm talking, you have money. And you have the gift of giving and you have a stewardship from God. If someone like that put the same amount of effort into giving that I do into preparation, boy, that would be powerful. If there were people like that in the body of Christ, there would be some wealthy, wealthy people. Now, I'm not saying that the puff, I just realized what that sounded like, you know. That's not the point, you know. The, The point is that if you are a wealthy person and you can receive the exhortation that Paul has given to you, the warning. You could see your wealth as a stewardship from God and as an opportunity to build an account in heaven that people would see it that way. That they may lay hold on eternal life. And then verse 20, a final word to Timothy. He says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. The ministry that you have received, the gifts that have been imparted to you by God, the opportunities to bring glory to his name. Hold on to it, Timothy. Avoiding profane and vain babblings, that is, useless words. Don't waste your time talking about stupid things like MIT and light and all that. And oppositions of science falsely so-called. Science is based upon facts. That's why it's called science, because it determines what facts are, and then it operates on facts. Theory is based upon philosophy and ideas. What men have done in our day is that they've taken science, facts, and they've replaced it with theory. And they've done this sleight-of-hand thing where now if someone rejects the theory that the current science is standing upon, then they are called unscientific, but not so. Because it's, if it's not fact, then it's not science. It's simply theory. See, Well, you're unscientific. Timothy, 
Stay away from those oppositions. It's science, it's fact. If it's science, it's fact. He says, and then he says, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. And then he closes off, grace be with thee. And so we close off as we finish First Timothy with the Lord to you. May grace be with thee. Shall we stand and pray? Father, we thank you tonight for the word that we've heard. We know, Lord, that you love us so much, that you so desire, Lord, that we finish well, that we lay up in store a good foundation for the time to come, that we would lay hold upon eternal life. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that the things that we've heard in your word, the truth that you have written to us, the love that you've demonstrated, that it would go before us, Lord, and that we would walk in your truth, that we'd experience fellowship with you, that the light of your countenance would light our path, and that you would become our true and highest affection. And so, Father, I pray that you'd go with us, that you would prepare our way, and that these things would be a continual reminder to us of this life that we've been called into and the grace that we've received. In Jesus' name, amen.